Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. All right, welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Uh, today, I have a very special guest. And um, if you don't know me, I'm David Agronoff. I'm the author of Ring of F- the Splatterpunk Award-nominated Ring of Fire, uh, Punk Rock Ghost Story, and recently released sci-fi novel, Goddamn Killing Machines. Um, this is a really awesome and important interview for me to do because probably my favorite writer on the planet and the person whose uh, blending of science fiction and horror has been a huge inspiration to me is cyberpunk patient zero, John Shirley, who's joining us today on Postcards from a Dying World. And we're gonna talk about what he's been up to. And I promise you I'll have John back to do more career retrospective stuff, but I'm gonna bring in the other John Shirley expert, Sean Lawton, to join me for that one. But today we're just going to focus on what's going on with John, your feelings in this uh, pandemic world, because we haven't heard a lot from you lately. And uh, I know you've been hard at work on an album. So welcome, John. Good to have you. Good to be here. (laughs) All right. So you have been hard at work recently. um, And like, I know I've got um, John Shirley and the Screaming Geezers CD here, but is the record... um, some of the songs are similar, right? Or or are they completely different? What's going on with this album that you just put out? Some uh, of the songs are the same as uh, on this. What you have is a sampler album that we used basically to get gigs, but we also sent out some copies to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the new album has some of those songs and it has a whole bunch of new songs. Yeah. Now you- and here's, here's, the, uh, here's the cover. I don't think you can make this out very well here. Yeah. For those uh, watching on YouTube. Uh, why does it look backwards? Uh, I think it it's backwards fine for in my you. It looks, it looks fine for me. Um, I'm, well, I am in that mirror uh, world that in from Alice in Wonderland. So that's probably the reason. But um, yeah, that's, that's basically the cover. Buck Dharma from Blue Oyster told me he really liked this cover art. Yeah, I think it's great. Uh, who did the cover art for you? Uh, a guy named Dan Sauer, who's S A U E R. He's in the. Um, he's very connected to uh, the kind of Lovecraftian area of, and weird tales sort of area of illustrating, uh, but he also does stuff like this. The back cover is a picture of us opening for the Blue Oyster Cult. In fact. Yeah, and I do want to get back to that show because that sounded really, really cool, and I was super jealous of. Well, of course, I, I, you know, right after I leave Portland, you come back, which, um, you know, like two ships passing in the night, but uh, unfortunately didn't get a chance to be able to see you play music on the regular because I moved back down here. But um, I got the impression that moving back up to the Pacific Northwest was in part for to kind of restart this musical journey for you. Um, it, it was, was that the intention from the beginning or was it just that you missed, uh, the part of the, the, the region that you, uh, grew up in? Why I moved back to the Portland area? Yeah. Um, a, a variety of reasons, uh, starting with the, 
property taxes in California were getting higher and higher. It was, and also cost, just cost of living there. And, um, uh, but also I had a kind of an elephant's graveyard desire to go back to the Pacific Northwest where I more or less grew up. Um, and uh, I, I was going to move to Portland, but we wanted to buy a house with certain characteristics and it was Portland was having a spike of real estate prices. So we picked Vancouver, Washington, just across the Columbia River from Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's very, it's a very uh, much a kind of Willamette Valley, uh, Columbia Gorge sort of community. Um, and very, very, uh, a lot of it is, you know, right on the edge of all this different pastoral countryside. So, um, yeah, I'm, we've got a good place here. We like it. We, we are able to buy a house at a reasonable price. And, and uh, I have a lot of connections in Portland where I, uh, all these people I was in bands with way back in the day um, are uh, still you know, playing music. Uh, and so I was able to cobble together a band with them, the Screaming Geezers. Um, and we played some, a, a number of gigs. Uh, the band is kind of like post-punk um, uh, with some garage influences. Like we do a cover of a Sonics, song by the Sonics, Strict Nine. Um, but also there's, there's, there's some modern influences like uh, All Them Witches and uh, Clutch is semi-modern. Uh, so it's, it's sort of in there somewhere. It's, there's just, there's just a sweet spot in there, but it's definitely interested in rocking. I, I feel like with the trouble of the contemporary rock bands is that the majority of them don't know how to actually rock. They, it's not exactly the style of music they play. It's their attitude. They're, they're playing, um, uh, kind of ironically they rock ironically and they're, they're just like winking as they rock whereas we actually rock we get into it we you know at the same time we're making statements you know we, the, the lyrics are meaningful yeah and, and i think that the the energy is really really strong on uh at least on, on the samples that i have uh i really like the kind of the raw energy that you're bringing back to it. Uh, you can tell um, that you guys are excited to be playing together and playing with each other. Um, some of those connections, they, they, must, they, they, they do go back to, to obsession and say donation days, right? When you were playing in Portland back then, some of the musicians that you're working with. Yeah, the drummer is from, was my drummer from say donation. Great. Um, and uh, the bass player, uh, Mark Stan, uh, who, um, who wrote the book All Ages about Portland punk rock and how it was like the genesis of things like grunge. Um, uh, he it was in a, all kinds of things. He had his finger in everything in, in uh, the early punk scene in Portland, Oregon, and was in uh, bands with me then. And, uh, and then uh, uh, Jimmy Haskett, the guitar player, was in... Uh, Roz Rezbeck's um, Theater of Sheep, which was kind of a classic mm, amalgam of, of uh, punk and uh, glam rock. 
and uh, satire and all of that. Um, he's really he's, he's a guy who can play any style, and so uh, he's pretty great. Well, and I think it's it's interesting too because and one of the things I was trying to do with my novel Punk Rock Ghost Story was to show the difference between punk rock before um, your Green Days and your Nirvanas made being weird and alternative almost mainstream and how different it was and, and how much you had to do it for, for the love of, of the energy and, and the, because you know no one was rolling out money or providing venues for, for, for punk music in the early days. It was a DIY and for the love kind of art form. Right, it was DIY, it really was. Yeah, and so one of the things that's cool is you're talking about the guy from your band that I remember uh, at World War in uh, Portland, he was he was laying out the book um, for a couple of us that were hanging out and we got to see like, it was really great to see the, um, the, the, the grassroots of the early punk scene in Portland because at the time it was 2014 and and you know there's nothing I mean there's still grassroots and and basement shows and stuff like that that still go on today but um that was it for punk rock in 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 those days you guys were um almost like on a frontier you know uh doing this stuff with you know you didn't have um years of people doing it before you to show you how, how to do this. So you guys had to kind of figure out how you were going to make this genre happen. And I'm, I'm wondering if that experience back in the day is helping bring a fresh energy to what you guys are doing now. You know what I'm saying? Well, sure it is. We, uh, since then, you know, we've all absorbed a, a lot of musicianship and uh, influences from, from various places. And we can play, uh, we have <clears throat> one song that's basically a kind of dark country rock ballad. So we have a lot of different directions we can go in. But yes, I mean, it, it's, it's, um, it's like a, if you have a, a truck that runs on diesel, um, well, this truck is still running on diesel. You know, it's still burning that big, heavy, uh, polluting fuel. <laughs> and so, um, but it, but um, it's just has kind of, you know, got more intricate and and a little more planned. I mean, we we also are very interested in in uh, song craft and the craftsmanship of writing songs. So you know we we put together things that have a, a definite structure but also we also will will we have like certain bands do like the velvet underground used to do the the ability to play within these structures and then the ability to uh to just kind of go off into a, a strange uh you know a semi-improvisational wildness um like like the velvets used to do for example and um, few bands do anymore. Or, you know, you could, you could give Hendrix as an example. He would do that. And then he would bring it back into the structure again. Um, and so, you know, we, we like take, it's like we're taking you on an expedition or something out of, it's, it's, like, it's like you're going on a, a safari in Africa and you're, and you're safe in your, 
in, in with your safari people and then they take you out into the wilderness and then they bring you safely back home that's well, that's what we do well and i think that it's great because you guys have been friends and colleagues for so many years you went off you had different experiences different artistic ventures and i think i'm sure there's a shorthand for you guys coming back together that any musical attempts you've had in between probably didn't have right and i think that that yeah. lends to great creativity yeah well also we we you know we do some at first we have uh, certain covers that we do from and old some old songs that we do like our love is like a death camp is a song from 1978 that i wrote with mike king and it's kind of a satirical just attempt to outrage everybody possible uh and um but and very uh it's sort of like black sabbath meets punk rock um and so we just, you know, that's one of the first things we played because we all know it. And it's really pretty simple. Um, uh, but it's a big jam up song, too. And, it, and that's on the album. Um, and uh, uh, so that's kind of our roots thing we had. And then we also would do Iggy Pop covers, Iggy and the Stooges, rather, covers like, you know, um, uh, Loose, you know, uh, by the Stooges, for example, um, and down on the streets by the Stooges, uh, things from from uh, Funhouse, because they're relatively easy to 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 learn and put together. But you know, make doing them convincingly is something else, and it's something we all had in common. And then we were able to cohere as a band, doing these these covers that we knew and doing a few old songs that we knew. And then we, from there, we grew into writing original things and, and newer things. And, and you can hear all of that on the album. Well, and, and you guys do Johnny Paranoid too, which um, uh, is, I think that song has an incredible hook. So anybody that hears that song instantly gets like sucked in because I think um, one of the things that makes that song so memorable is that the 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 hook and the um, combination of the riff with the vocals just uh, it's instantly memorable and that song is one that 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 gets stuck in your head. Yeah, and it it uh, uh, is one we still play and we we play we played it while opening for the Blue Oyster Cult and and people seem to love it. Um, you know, we you that hook. played a range of stuff and there was 1500 people at that show, uh, which was the biggest show we'd played. And the place was completely full, the Roseland Theater. And uh, they, and usually, you know, people are just kind of shrugged off an opening act, but we got them from the beginning. We just had them, you know, we could just feel they were captivated and they loved us. And the Blue Oyster Cult said we were really good. So that was a big deal for me. You know, when, yeah. when uh, Buck Dharma tells you, you know. And, and by the way, there's a new Blue Oyster Cult album coming in October with five songs that, that are my lyrics. Well, right, and you have that relationship with, the, <clears throat> with Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah, I've written a lot of songs for them. None of their big hits. It was after that time in their career, but I've written a lot of songs. I get, I get paid right. by ASCAP for them sometimes. And the, um, uh, the album is called uh, The Symbol Remains. 
from Frontier Records. So people who are fans of BOC will want to check that out in October. It'll be in all formats, vinyl and download and CD. Yeah. And this album, that the Screaming Geezers album, will be in vinyl in a, in a few weeks, a month, maybe. Oh, sorry, will be in on CD in a few weeks. Uh, so if you want to be a CD of it, it'll be around. And then I'm going to arrange for downloads. But right now, it's only on vinyl. Well, and and so playing that show, um, that that had to be like kind of a, a moment where you felt like it was all coming together, and and you know. For, for this group and, and and that had to be a really good feeling, especially to do with a, with a band that you have such a great relationship with. with. Yeah, and then it's suddenly COVID-19 happened right after that. That was in February. We got it in. <laughs> and we had to cancel, we had a bunch of shows around Portland and they were canceled. We canceled them or the club did. All the clubs basically closed and um, we weren't able to rehearse um, you know, uh, we still are not rehearsing, um, and that is, is a, an issue, you know, it's hard to, uh, keep your momentum going, but we're going to revive it, uh, as soon as there's a vaccine. <laughs> well, hey, plenty of time for you guys to write ideas. And yeah, we're going to start doing stuff on Zoom with one another. Oh, good, good. All right, so, um, we might talk a little bit more Screaming Geezers later, but, I wanted to talk next about um, this issue of Weird Book number two, for those of you who are watching on the YouTube version. Um, I'm holding it up. It's the John Shirley special issue number 42 of Weird Book, which is a great uh, zine to begin with. Um, and so this was um, the first uh, fiction we've gotten in a little while. And it was great to, uh, I. One of my favorites, what I liked um, the short stories quite a bit in, in this one. You had uh, four short stories or five short stories in a novel, a short novel in here. And uh, the Broken Wheel of Time short story, I absolutely love. Broken on the Wheel of Time. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a kind of a novel. It's a novel at length. Yeah, and um, that one I, I really appreciated. And then that ambulance, again, had kind of a Twilight Zone feel. Mm-hmm um that story um can you tell us about uh writing uh broken on the wheel of time and uh where that one came from and give a little pitch on that well i was asked to write a lot of lovecraftian stories um i was one of those guys who read a lot of lovecraft when i was a young person and uh i used to order books from arkham house when i was a teenager so i uh said yes to these requests for uh, Lovecraftian anthologies, many of them from S.T. Joshi, who wrote the definitive biography of Lovecraft. And um, I uh, developed an, enough uh, of those stories out, uh, accumulated enough to make a, um, a story collection. And that, that's, the story collection is called Lovecraft Alive, and it, did, it came out from Hippocampus which is S.T. Joshi's uh, publishing company. And uh, they publish a lot of weird tales, sort of inflected stuff. And I uh, wanted to write an original piece for Lovecraft Alive. And that's it. That was it. It was um, Broken on the Wheel of Time, um, which is, uh, it's, it's about um, 
uh, Shadows Out of Time, I believe is the story, The Shadow of Time, um, that, that kind of whole Lovecraftian, one of his, his little mythos niches where he has these creatures that move through time and can put, sort of uh, take over your body and you can move back and be in their bodies, these truly alien bodies. And so um, is somebody in, in like the late 19th century, early 20th century discovering uh, that they can do that um, and uh, mixed with, with people in our own time. And um, it, you know, I, I, think, I think it's a really, I, what I do with Lovecraft, it, uh, Lovecraftian stories is I, I take something of his and I try to evoke the, you know, the cosmic doom and everything else that he brings to it. But I, I also try to bring something new and to get, come at it from a different angle, like the same thing, the, the same ideas, but from a new angle, um, I, just something fresh to really, really bring it alive. That's why it's called Lovecraft Alive, because I'm trying to enliven it instead of just writing knockoff Lovecraftian stories. I've seen a, a few too many of those around. Uh, so that's what I did. I, I tried to bring it uh, alive from a whole new fresh angle. So, uh, which, is, which is the what the thing that makes the collection so great is that um, it does. Uh, I mean, you're you're good at doing the Lovecraft pastiche when you when you want to give that flavor, but the the John Shirley ideas and the uh, fresh concepts always bleed through in those stories and, and give them the, the edge that we're looking for to make a difference. And what I think is happening a lot now with the mythos writing that's happening now is, is that people are so focused on having the conversation with Lovecraft's negative views, the, the racism, the, the, the ugly stuff, that um, we're getting more of uh, of that now than than the, the straight cosmic dread in in some regards. And what I liked about um, Broken on the Wheel of Time, for example, is is that there is that kind of inherent terror in the um, in the movement outside of the universe kind of thing. Yes. And that's that's what I like about that story. I mean, not that there's anything, I think, you know, Lovecraft Country being on HBO, confronting the racism of it, and Matt Ruff's novel, Victor Laval doing that with Ballad of Black Tom, great stuff. Um, but um, I, I think that it's good that uh, the, um, there, there's lots of different ways to confront uh, the Lovecraft vibe, is what I'm saying. Yes, indeed. and. Uh... Lovecraft Country. I, I was I was glad to see that they they brought in um, in the HBO thing also um, Lovecraft's own racism. They just mentioned it, and but they mentioned it in a very um, surgically incisive kind of way. Um, you know, uh, and, uh, went on about uh, some racist poetry he'd written and so on. And um, Less surgical in the novel Lovecraft Country, but well done. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure there's more, and they get into it more. And so, mm -hmm. what? Well, it's it's like, um, it's it's sort of like they're they're they it's written. I think the novel's done by somebody who loves Lovecraft, but also wanted to turn it around 
and sort of make sort of sort of uh, flip that on Lovecraft himself in a way and say, I, I, yes, but Howard, what about your racism? Well, here's what I'm doing with your stuff. And um, I did something like that in um, uh, my my story, Those Who Come to Dagon, um, which is in Lovecraft Alive. Um, it was it was an anti-racist story it had to do with slavery and so on. Um, so that was I had that impulse too some years ago. So uh, it's a natural impulse when dealing with yeah. that. For sure. Another thing I, I was influenced by when I was a kid was as so many people were uh, was uh, sword and sorcery fiction and and fantasy fiction, uh, fantasy adventure fiction, everything from from Robert E. Howard, uh, you know, uh, to Clark Ashton Smith, um, to uh, Fritz Lieber's Lankmar stories, uh, uh, to uh, Michael Moorcock, to uh, Tolkien. So there's kind of a spectrum there. And, um, but I wrote a novella at the, at the other end, of the earlier end of the spectrum, a little closer to Fritz Lieber and Robert, Robert E. e. Howard um, which is in the um, weird book yeah. called uh, Swords of Atlantis. Yeah. Um, I later found out there's something called Swords of Atlantis somewhere. I think it's a video game or something. I'm not sure what it is. But no, it, it was an, uh, a, an Aquaman thing. Uh, apparently an Aquaman miniseries called that. So I'm going to be expanding uh, Swords of Atlantis novella uh, into a novel. And I'm changing the title to Sorcerer of Atlantis. And um, it is, but it's, it's, it tries to kind of uh, revisit the, ex the excitement, the boyish excitement I felt uh, reading um, uh, Conan's stories and uh, the Langmore stories and, and other, um, uh, Lynn Carter, and all, you know, that whole range, uh, El Sprague de Camp. Uh, stories and um, and also it's influenced by Jack Vance too um, there's a there's a whole kind of picaresque as they say um, influence in it where there's the character is is a little bit of an anti-hero uh, he's a little bit of a blunderer in some ways he's 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 um, uh, but he um, at the same time uh, is growing and developing. And um, it's, it's like, I, I'm trying to get that, that Vancean sense of humor and, and, and wryness about human nature in there. Um, and, and also one thing that makes this a little distinct indeed is that, that, that uh, uh, Swords of Atlantis has a sense of humor. It doesn't make, it's not satirical, it's not parodying um, sword and sorcery. It just it just has some humor in it, the way Vance would often have humor in it, uh, in his fantasy stuff. Um, and uh, and it's a little bit um, kind of like con con you know certain certain contemporary uh, movie making and television a little bit in that and that there's they will have a sense of humor about things sometimes, and yet at the same time it's it can be scary. Well, not quite, not quite so far as Army of Darkness or something, but <laughs> not, not quite that funny. But still, there's humor in it. 
So uh, that is a little bit bold because, you know, people take uh, sword and sorcery and, and fantasy things. You, it's just kind of like the way it's redone now. People have no sense of humor and their humor doesn't emerge in it. Um, but so I, I did allow it. And I think it makes it more fun. But at the same time, it's, it is a heroic action story. Well, what I think is really good about sort of Atlantis and, and we've seen you hint at this Jack Vance like style a little bit in short stories before. But what, what I like about it is that um, it feel this story to me felt like it fell out of time. <laughs> right. Um, and a lot of the new new fantasy, like you can tell these kids grew up on Harry Potter or they grew up on on, um, you know, and, and they're trying to tick a lot of boxes in order to like fit market and so on and so forth. And what I liked about this story was is that it, like I said, it felt like it fell out of time with this era, um, but has the skill of a writer that has like honed his craft for as long as you have. And, um, and just that balance of old school versus like talent and ability is really good for me. And I'm really excited to hear that you're going to be expanding it because I think that there, there's a niche for that old school feel uh, of, of that kind of fantasy novel, but with a, um, a modern political sensibility, which I think is what you, what, what you bring to those things. Yeah. And, a, yeah, go on. I, I know I'm talking a lot, but I- No, it's I, all right. I just want to point this out before you, you tell us more about working on this is that for me, it's exciting because um, I can look over. I have my John Shirley shelf over there that I have three rows worth of books that I've got stuffed over there. And um, but this isn't like anything that you've done before. And that's that's really exciting to me is that um, I really think that um with the new excitement that you got going on with the screaming geezers and things, it, it feels to me like you're wanting to branch out into this, into this new territory for you by going back to the things that engaged you with fiction when you were young. Is that, is that? Well, sure. There's, you know, there's an eternal 12 year old boy in me. And, um, you know, that's the, that's the kid who, who, uh, who uh, makes me go to see superhero movies, Marvel movies, you know, who digs Captain America movies and Iron Man movies. And um, and he's also the kid who likes rereading um, Sword and Sorcery and uh, books. And and um, uh, I reread um, uh, Vance's The Demon Prince's books um, not that long ago with great enjoyment. And that 12-year-old boy in me loved it. He was very, you know, it's uh, I, I can escape into that kid and and um, so I get a lot of energy from him did you and, reading it as reading it as an adult did you see um, workings behind the scenes that you didn't catch when you were younger of course of course yeah. you know I understand I picked up a lot of subtleties and and sort of rueful remarks and witty things that I didn't get when I was young and also the uh, writing craft, you know, I was able to, I cannot help myself, you know, at this point in my life, I cannot help but read analytically. 
um, as well as as with enjoyment. I mean, it's it, it's you have to have that balance uh, as a writer. Uh, you know, you got to be able to enjoy the book to get through it, but you but you can't. But I just feel that writers are going to inevitably um, analyze the writing that they're reading. So I'm reading Raymond Chandler. I never got much into him, and I'm just. Uh, mentally dissecting everything and, and how he does it at the same time as really enjoying the book. Well, and you're so good at um, like your Edgar Allan Poe story that that you got to finish. You, you did such a great job of getting into that voice. The way that you, I, I think, I can tell from your from the Lovecraft pastiche, from the Poe pastiche that you've done, that uh, you're really good at analyzing like this work as as you see it you know, like the, the gears behind it. And I know from my experience in doing the Dickheads podcast is that when I read a book for fun or just, you know, whatever, it's very different from when I've got my highlighter out and I'm reading, like I'm reading Ganymede Takeover right now for the podcast. And I have to read it three times, it's three times slower because I'm paying really close attention to the mechanics behind everything. That's what we're well, it's doing. good for you. It's good for a writer. As yeah. it, it's, you know, um, it it, uh, it gets uh, imprinted on us somewhere, and and uh, uh, we we have to be. If you're going to be a writer, you have to be a sponge. But you know that you don't have to steal their story. You just have to. But you have to be able to pick up um, riffs, and and you have to be able to pick up chops. I mean, it's, it's a lot like being a musician. And, and you know, a musician, um, you know, learns things. The, the Rolling Stones learned ever so much from Chuck Berry and and uh, uh, Muddy Waters and um, Jimmy Reed, and then developed their own thing. But they did. But they absorbed, you know, and also from soul. They took a lot from soul. Uh, and but they but they bring their own take on it eventually. But you still need that to be able to to learn these basics. If you're going to elaborate on them with some freshness, you still have to start with them. And then also sim the simple, you know, uh, people don't, you know, young, uh, writers, a lot of young writers now are, are not reading enough and kind of lack a basis and uh, grammatical uh, and syntactical construction. Um, that should become second nature, and they're they're reading um, less and and watching more uh, visual media, uh, it, which is good. I love I love all that that stuff, that, but um, we they need to read more uh, more broadly. Um, I, I made that. I, I think that's my that's my main critique for kind of the outpouring of writers now. I made the decision at the beginning of the quarantine that I was going to watch less and I was going to make sure that I was reading at least 120 pages a day that I had made the decision that I had to read that amount a day before I could sit down and watch a TV show or whatever. And I'm still consuming that stuff, but I just made myself a promise. Like I've got to have that much day um, because I, I feel like it's important feeding me. And uh, editing has to be very self-editing has to be second nature too for all all young writers had better um just accept numerous drafts mm -hmm. because and also uh, the thing is when you 
not don't just look at it on the screen. For some reason, if you print a thing out, um, especially if you print it out in a way so that it looks like a book, you'll see all these things and problems in it. You'll say, oh, I really screwed that up that you didn't see when it was on a screen. Mm -hmm. um, I recommend that. Um, and we're going to get to your coming novel here in a little bit. But I, I and look, I've said this a hundred times. Wet Bones is my favorite horror novel that was ever made. And I, I said we're not going to dive deep into your career. But I learned a lot by, I, I've read Wet Bones four times. It's one of the few books that I've read as many times as, you know, fiction wise. But the top five horror novels in my canon, which include Robert McCannon's Swan Song, The Sheep Look Up by John Bruner. These are books that I've made a point of going back and reading multiple times because I don't need to hear the story again. But what I wanted to do was be able to understand like why the book worked for me, worked on me. Like why. That's uh, right. That's important to do. Yeah. And, and for Wet Bones, which is your, and, and I want to contrast this to, to the novel that you're working on with the um, expanding of um, your Atlantis book, is that um, John Shirley in 1991 or 1990, when you were writing, writing Wet Bones, was, was a very angry uh, person working on, on issues through the book. Yeah. And what I think is cool is that now we have an artist who, yeah, you're still very angry about things in the world, and we'll get to that in a bit. But um, I think with the creative freedom that you're getting with the Screaming Geezers, we're getting a chance to see you be able to, to delve into the joy of your imagination um, with that. And, and I really appreciate that because... I like the angry John Shirley because it produced one of my favorite books. But I also, as a friend too, I like to see the happy John Shirley <laughs> writing sword and sorcery. So I'm excited for that. Well, yeah, good. And I, and you know, if it works for readers, um, then I'm going to be very happy about it. I've gotten good, some good feedback on that story. Yeah. So, um, but speaking of angry John Shirley, <laughs> we have a novel coming out, uh, next April called Stormland. And I'm gonna, for those that are watching the YouTube version, I'm gonna share the cover um, here. And um, Stormland is definitely in a genre that is popping right now, which is uh, what I've written into is, is cli-fi. Um, and the reason why it's popping so much is because it is so clearly one of the biggest threats that's happening to um, We're living through it exactly. right now and science fiction has to deal with this we we have right. to, we have to deal with this and you know i've said recently like we've got a little bit because i do a philip k dick podcast we've talked a little bit about like how would phil deal with climate change and he did a little bit because he talks about a warming world and three stigmata and he did do a little bit of it but that was more the territory of of bruner but now we're very lucky because we get to get your take on, on climate change. And I'm sure you have probably had lots of different ideas come to you. Um, what, give us the pitch about Stormland. How did, how did Stormland form and, and what can we look forward to? Stormland's been um, in the works for some years. 
I, I first wrote uh, about it uh, for Interzone magazine. I wrote a story called The Kindest Man in Stormland. And ironically, it's an ironic title, The Kindest Man in Stormland is a person who used to be a serial killer. And they found out that most serial killers have something literally wrong in their brains, the theory that scientists do have. And there's a way to fix that. They, they adjust mirror neurons and they restore empathy and <clears throat> expand his consciousness. And they did this neurologically. And so this guy is an experiment uh, to, to see whether um, uh, the impulse to be psychopathic and, and to be you know, murderous <clears throat> can be cured. And, and, uh, he and, and it works. Uh, he's not the hero of the book, but he's one of the most important characters. Um, he's the kindest man in Stormland, ironically, an ex-serial killer. The hero is a, um, uh, a former U.S. Marshal who left the, the Marshal Service after it became privatized um, and, and became, you know, he was angry at all the changes that privatization brought to it. And so he becomes um, a, 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 a stringer, freelance um, detective uh, for a company who searches for missing people. Um, uh, some of them are missing fugitives and some aren't. And um, that takes him into Stormland itself. Uh, Stormland is the colloquial name for the area around Charleston, South Carolina, which um, is a place where there, in the future, in, in the mid 21st century, where there's storms 24 hours a, a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, for year after year. Um, the, there's a little lull between storms, but the storm never completely goes away. There's still something. And it's like one hurricane after another. Uh, uh, and then other kinds of of nightmarish storm systems, uh, you know, really super involved lightning storms and so on. And uh, so the town is 98% is deserted, uh, as you might imagine, and all the area around it, Stormland extends like 100 miles in each direction. Um, it's like the, it's sort of like the red spot on Jupiter, which is a permanent storm on the planet Jupiter. Um, it's, it's, and it's been created by climate change, uh, human, human, human cause, anthropogenic uh, climate change has led to this permanent storm um, in this area. So why would anybody stay there? And so that's the why of it is, is part of the story. And, and he goes uh, looking for a, a, another serial killer and ends up working with this former serial killer to find this person and then discovers this, that Stormland is being used by evil people uh, who are, an, they're part of the 1% of the 1% of the future and they're using it as a kind of, well, I don't want to say, you know, give away too much of the story, but um, there's a there's this sort of there's a social metaphor that's impregnated within the thing that is um, woven into it. And, uh, and, uh, even though this is a detective, this is a futuristic detective science fiction adventure thing with cyberpunk and sci-fi elements, it's definitely also a, a statement about um, uh, you know the the widening of the gap between the rich and the poor in the future. It's sort of related to my TEDx speech that I gave. It's some ideas that you'll find in there.
when I described what, what, what I felt would happen uh, in 50 years. Um, you can find that on YouTube. Well, uh, and, and uh, yeah, it was, it's also in my book, New Taboos, I had transcribed into it. Yeah, I, um, yes, I, I love that TED Talk. And, and um, one of the, I, I, and this is, you know, one of the painful things for science fiction writers who write very predictive science fiction. We, I, I, I'm wondering as, as things started to, early in this pandemic when, when, you know, we have such terrible leadership and people are trying to figure out what's going wrong. Did you see parallels to your novel, Everything is Broken? Because um, I did. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. On a, on a, it was a different movement, but especially when, for example, the George Floyd murder happened and then it just looked like we were so close to the edge with these things. And, and it's not the leadership that held us back. It's, it's, it, it's people like having to kind of bootstrap their own like communities because we certainly right. need leadership at the top. Anyways, everything is broken. Like the novel, everything is broken. Yeah, yeah it's, it's about this small imaginary town called Freedom, uh, Freedom, California, and Northern California. That is the whole. In fact, a, a really large tsunami hits most of the coast of California, which is a really big coast, and does wreckage all up and down. So it's a semi. Uh, post-apocalyptic book, I guess, because there's so much damage is done. Nobody comes to help this, this town and nobody there asked for it because the people who have taken over the town are libertarian, Ayn Rand sort of people, free marketers. So what happens when you have an emergency um, and, and uh, you have all these uh, infrastructural and medical needs and so on, and the town is run by, by people who believe only in privatization um, suddenly, you know, when you need, when you need help, you're not getting it. You don't have a real fire department. You don't have a real medical, you know, community medical services. Um, you don't have FEMA is, is, you know, and so, um, cause they're not reaching out to FEMA because they don't believe in it. And so that everybody has to deal with things, you know, do it yourself on their own. Uh, and that includes uh, the, the rise of uh, violent people in the town. You know, there's a gang in the town, and and inevitably, um, they uh, with without any real organized police presence in an intelligent way, uh, you know, they they begin to depredate, and and it's sort of about the struggle with them and the struggle to survive, uh, despite the fact that the town is run by a corrupt guy who's. Um, using libertarianism as, as an excuse to steal from people, really. Um, yeah, that's everything is broken. You can still find that around. That would be a good movie. It should be a movie. <laughs> I agree. Well, it's very, it's what, very high concept, I think. Well, what's going on and everything is broken that I think people are, are kind of like missing what's happening now is that um, it's the critique of libertarianism because we have this situation now where you have people who are um, showing up with guns to the state house in Michigan, right? Yeah. And they're saying, I don't want to wear a mask. I don't want to do this. I need my freedom. We're seeing the, um, we're seeing where the lack of leadership or, or like, we're seeing even 
though we don't have a libertarian country, we're seeing what just the lack of a one true voice right. in the crisis is leading right. to problems. Right. I mean, there's, there's such a thing as, as democratic orderliness. And, and there is such a thing as, as um, infrastructure, uh, or, you know, arisen in a democracy. And uh, it can be, it can have, you know, the conservatives can have their input and, and, the, and the progressives have theirs and they come up with something that works and that used to be what there was. But now everything's getting thrown out, except for um, a really ugly um, uh, police presence. Um, you know, uh, they they talk about um, these libertarian conservatives talk about wanting you know, um, freedom, and um, but they they have uh, a very much, you know, like we have the, we have Trump bringing federal troops in to bully people in Portland and other places, um, and uh, and in Washington, um, state and what in D.C. Um, and then we have, you know, and also in 2006, um, the FBI released a report noting that white supremacists were actively seeking to infiltrate police departments. And nobody really took that seriously or got into it. I don't know how much the FBI followed up. I think they did somewhat, but they, not enough. And uh, NPR... Yeah. NPR has a, a piece about it somewhere in NPR News. They have they, they did a follow up in I think 2016, and and they said that if anything things were worse, and there were definitely uh, uh, white supremacists infiltrating the police departments, and and we and the death of George George Floyd, that the guy who killed him, is is certainly one of these people, and we have the the you know, sick relationship between the Portland police and the, the Proud Boys kind of people and, and all of those people in that. All the, there's, there's just different uh, right-wing racist organizations that they're in relation with. They talk to them on, uh, on, uh, on the internet. They go to the same websites and there are racist police uh, websites. Um, they're like group, racist police groups that are on social media on their closed groups or that police go to. And, you know, so uh, you have, for example, like there was a sheriff in Idaho, or, you know, there was one in Idaho, there was one in Nevada, uh, there was one in Florida, that these, these guys have started refusing to send the police um, to places where there's support of Black Lives, Lives Matter. Because they have, they they say, oh, you, you know, you you're you're these people, this BLM people, these Black Lives Matter people are trying to destroy America. Well, I'm not going to collaborate that with that, with help uh, by helping you. And they so so they, you know, the, the police department not going into some place where there's a problem. Maybe there's a, even a bank robbery. They won't go there because uh, this community supports. Black Lives Matter. Well, how did all these sheriffs decide to do this at once? It's because they talk on the internet and they and they work up these strategies, and people need to get to to find ways into those uh, groups and uh, uh, find out what their agenda is and how they're connected. Um, and we need serious police reform in this country, but we, uh, we you know. 
I think it was it's kind of a mistake to harp on the term defund the police departments. I think it should have been differently fund the police departments, mm-hmm. fund community policing way, way more. Um, you know, uh, def- defund parts of it like, like uh, you know, their, bu- their purchase of military, uh, de- you know, weaponry and armor and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and also, you, there has to be an effort to, to uh, methodically go through every police department, investigate who is a white supremacist, who is a white nationalist, uh, and fire them. They have, to be, they have to be rooted out of American police departments completely, because otherwise there's going to be endless conflict. Um, and these guys love that conflict because they think they're helping the big boogaloo come, the, you know, the, the, the race war that they, that they really do anticipate, that, that they're trying to promote. They, we, have, we have a brown shirt type um, Nazis in Portland now gathered um, as counter demonstrators, supposedly um, armed uh, and being treated with kid gloves by the Portland police. And they're all from outside the community because people forget that the rest of Oregon is not like Portland. Um, yes, yeah. I mean, it, the, I think probably I think probably sixty percent of the population of Oregon is relatively progressive. They're Democrats or they're other kinds of progressives. But there's a lot of people. There's a huge number of people spread around uh, Oregon, especially in the rural communities, who are very, very far to the right. And some of them are racist, and they are. And we have some here in Vancouver. Those guys—they've started the Proud Boy thing. They're they're Vancouverites. I even uh, there's a bar that they hang out in called the Ice House in Vancouver, and um, right after they had their their big um, demonstration in Portland, um, they had a big racist demonstration um, last year. Right after that, they went <clears throat> to the Ice House. Um, the, there was like a hundred of them there and with with um, they still had all their signs you know uh, white lives matter you know <laughs> you know and, and it's and they have signs. They put up banners these guys put up, these guys put up banners on pedestrian bridges over the freeway that says that say um, uh, it's all right to be white and you know that's that that is they can say, oh, but we're just being positive about our, about this. We're just saying we feel a little bit crowded. No, that's not what you're doing. You're making a, you're making a white nationalist statement and you're just doing it in a cutesy way so that you can kind of get away with it more. But, you, but that's what it is. And it's, it's a sort of a racial dog whistle. And, and uh, so we have these people impregnated in Vancouver, Washington here, and we have them uh, in Portland, uh, I think m- most of them who go to Portland come from other parts, other places. They're from out of state, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, let's stay political here for a minute. And then um, when, during the Reagan years, I, it was hard to imagine that we could have anybody worse than Reagan because he did he did such terrible things to um, you know to progressive values. Then we had the George W. Bush era, and, and it was hard to believe that we could have anything worse. Now we're three years into what an undescribably bad narcissistic tornado of 
shit with <laughs> with Donald Trump. Um, it, it, like what I, for me, like I'm, I think people are underestimating how bad this could get with a guy who refuses to accept that he might, that he's getting his ass handed to him in, in the polls in November. And uh, it's not like I'm a huge Biden fan. I was a Bernie guy. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, but grow up, but grow up. But Bernie has endorsed Biden. Yeah, he has endorsed him. And why? Because uh, the alternative is fascism. Exactly. And that's exactly right. And listen, that's that's the whole thing is that what I am afraid of is this is Donald Trump worrying about getting reelected again. Like we're not getting out of this if he's already made jokes about a third term, like in the last couple of days. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and and so I think, you know, look. Like his pal Putin, who's who's changed the constitution in, in Russia to give to get, allow him to become permanently president. He said he was a big fan of Putin. A big um, fan of the guy who just poisoned the opposition leader, who just, right. who has, the opposition leader last I heard was in a coma because he had been mysteriously poisoned like many of Putin's enemies. So what do you think is the role of the, um, because, you know, it's hard because I just finished a, a, a sci-fi novel and I had to have a president involved in it. And I just decided to ignore the existence of Trump and just write about a realistic uh, president because this timeline is so insane. Uh, and I just decided I had to just ignore that and imagine sanity. Um, what do you think is the, the role of the uh, speculative fiction writer in 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 this era like how do we have to handle uh politics can we be quiet can we be silent like well i i don't want to say that the, that the writers of speculative fiction science fiction um should not you know write about other concerns uh should should you know need to be talking about our era in other ways i you know there's it, there is scope enough uh, for everything, but I feel like, like um, I feel at least a personal responsibility um, to write about the issues. A lot of science fiction is, has always been a critique of our time, set in other times, and metaphorically, it's about our time. Uh, and it, you know, it's also may have be speculation, but. It, about the future, but it's it's definitely informed by uh, concerns about our time. Uh, the way you know the way if this goes on, it's talking about things that that are that are being seeded now, and you see that in Philip K. Dick a lot. So I think that I think uh, uh, I think people who can do it well should do it, but it's up to them, of course. I, I I have tried to do it always uh, with, but uh, you know I, I believe in being an entertainer too, so I try to make it you know, built into the story in a way that's really entertaining. I mean, look how entertaining a book like um, uh, *The Handmaid's Tale* is, you know, and the and the show, a very good show, very entertaining, you know, very good storytelling, very gripping. Uh, but does it make a, a political point and it's just a point about humanity and oh my god 
<laughs> it is a powerful one. So it is possible to do those things, to, to have your cake and eat it too. So uh, people like John Steinbeck used to do it. He, you know, he wrote um, uh, Grapes of Wrath and there's a very good movie, a John Ford, I think, movie uh, of it. Um, it's, uh, it's powerful. It's a powerful story, uh, and it's a and it's about the people and and you know the working people uh, trying to trying to uh, have a have have a break in the world, you know, uh, and you know fairness for for uh, for those people and for the poor, um, you know, and showing them as hardworking people who need who just need a chance, and he was able to do that with a riveting story, and we can do that in science fiction. Yeah, yeah, and and I think, too, it's funny because uh, when we interviewed uh, Norman Spinrad for for, for Dickheads um, and Barry Maltzberg, like recently, it was funny talking to them about like all the things that like all the things that's painful for them to see coming true. You know, things that they hoped they wouldn't see happen in their fiction. Maltzberg talked a lot about his novel Revelations and um, Spinrad you know, talked about um, the Iron Dream and how he thought, you know, people wouldn't like, like he wouldn't see as much fascism in the sword and sorcery that was coming out. And it was. And I think for you, I, I would feel like the song called Youth Book yeah. and all the, the right wing, also the Russian manipulation and <laughs> yeah. that, that uh, we, you know, those things like, and personally, like, and I, some of the out-of-date stuff, like, I still think it's important to see where science fiction writers were at the time, but... The song called Youth is, I did update it in a newer edition somewhat. I didn't want to lose the flavor of it by going too far with that, but, you know, um, I, I, did, uh, I did some. There's a new edition uh, from Dover Books, and uh, so people can find that. That's the best one. It's the best edit uh, of it. Um, and uh, it's, it's three books, uh, Eclipse, Eclipse, Penumbra, and Eclipse, Corona. And, and I think it was fairly prescient. It predicted a, a rise of neo-fascism in the 21st century uh, and said that it would come back in Europe and even in Germany, where you'd think it would be the last place. And it has come back in Germany. And it, uh, there are neo-fascists um, all over Germany. And, and I mean, they're not, they're not the majority of people, but they're active all over Germany. And um, do you know where a, a lot of these guys are learning um, uh, military skills uh, in a militia kind of way? And you know where they're learning it? They uh, have been invited to um, uh, training camps in Russia. Mm. And uh, this recently came out that, that neo-fascists in Germany are going to Russia to to uh, to study um, uh, to 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 be trained militarily, uh, and the, and the camp uh, is run by the uh, Russian military secret service. Uh, it comes out is another thing they're finding. So um, <laughs> you know uh, it, it 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 that came true. Uh, but also I you know things like in my book like I had um, I predicted. Um, deep fake videos 
uh, uh, which are, are videos that you that are appear to be just ordinary real life videos, and you cannot tell the difference between those and real life. They're too perfectly crafted, uh, but in fact, they're they are CGI of a kind, um, and and you know you, it's the new deep fake fake videos which are happening are beginning to be exactly that. And they will be used to manipulate people with, with big fake information. Misinformation is, is uh, pervading the internet. It's like, it's taken over what, uh, Facebook. Yeah, QAnon, yeah. for example, the lies of QAnon, pervasive. Well, I saw uh, recently the deep fake people took um, the 2009 Star Trek movie and put Leonard Nimoy's face <laughs> all the box scenes and at first i was laughing but then i started thinking well this is really creepy there's also one where they took the shining and put jim carrey's face <laughs> uh, and, yeah you i know and i know and they and it's and it's going to be more and more realistic it's you, you won't be able to tell pretty soon and people have to be aware that that's coming be, that you have to be really skeptical of of uh, video images that that have outrageous information in them, it's probably not true. So, if it seems improbable, it probably never happened. <laughs> so we're recording a Dickheads episode on Sunday about the sheep look up with a panel. And so I've been, the last couple of days, I've been looking over and rereading the sheep look up. And I was thinking about that in relation to what we were just talking about with the Eclipse books, with your, with your song called Youth Trilogy, which is, when you look at the sheep look up and you look at the genius of what Bruner was predicting and things like, uh, there's a whole chapter in sheep look up about electric cars, for example, right? Yeah. And it's very realistically and well done. And then you look at it and you have to remember that was 1972. The eclipse books were a product of the Reagan years, mm -hmm. but look at how much they mirror. Um, and then, you know, during the Bush years we're saying, Oh, John Shirley, he nailed it, <laughs> right? And then we see this cycle where we see what you're doing is you're reflecting on the Reagan years. However, it's that cycle of progression, regression that you're able to reflect in society. And I think that's one of the strengths of speculative fiction is that, and, and you know, like, look, Bruner's gone. We can't ask him what he was trying to do with with the sheep look up, but you know, I have to ask you, like, how much of the of the Reagan years, how much of the of, of the song called Youth is is a product of the Reagan years, and how much does it surprise you how much it reflects today? It was a little. It was a little influenced by some things I saw arising. One thing I saw arising, and I think there's a continuity from the Reagan years to our time in that is uh, theocracy. In my, in this album, Screaming Geezers, I have a song uh, uh, that is um, uh, all about uh, the, the new theocracy. It's called Crushed Under a Cross. And um, the, uh, theocracy is coming like an avalanche of, of ice. Betsy DeVos sells you, uh, uh, enslaves your kids to Christ. Um, Christian right is coming, taking over education. Um, and so that I saw that coming in the Reagan era. And, um, there was, there was a, 
and and into Bush. You know, Bush was a, a reborn Christian fundamentalist. And there was a, a, a greater and greater relationship um, between um, these really extremist sort of right-wing uh, Christians uh, and um, people in government. Uh, and it's, it's uh, Trump is trying to use those people all the time. I mean, he doesn't believe God in God. He, he only believes in himself. He, he is utterly clueless about religion. Um, and, uh, but he's trying to pretend that he is a religious person and he, and he, and he is hooked up with people like, um, this Jerry Falwell junior kid and guy and, and, uh, you know, the, the more extreme elements of the Christian right. He's got people, he's got people in his, uh, on his staff who um, speak in tongues. There's a lady like his, his he has an advisor who's a, a you know, she's some sort of, of a fundamentalist minister. And um, she is, uh, she's, and she speaks of how water demons, whatever those are, are uh, going to enslave us. And we must struggle against these particular demons. Um, and she has this whole conspiracy theory about demons. And she's, she is on the president's staff. You know, uh, that's extremely dangerous. Uh, that's crazy. And, and then this lady, this lunatic um, doctor, uh, yeah, uh, what's her name from, from uh, uh, Texas? This, um, the who, demon doctor, yeah. Yeah, she's uh, the one who was endorsing the um, very iffy drug that he was pushing, mm -hmm. that Trump was pushing. Um, she, uh, she believes that um, that uh, demons attack you in your sleep, and they have sex with you in your sleep, and this will, and then they do that, and they use that to take you over. So she is going to be a guest at the Republican National Convention. Yeah, well, that's true. And, that is, she is going to be a guest there, and yeah. and uh, people like her. I mean, and and plus, he's he is not criticizing QAnon at all, which is full of lunacy and and uh, just you know far fringe rate craziness and bullshit. Uh, well, he, Trump is not he because they support him. Yeah. He said he, he said they're okay with him because they like him. Well, and it's funny, too, because he, uh, it's so weird because these QAnon people, they think he's some hero wanting to save children when I, I don't, I don't think he would, he would run across a room to, to save a child, but. This Q, I think, originates with, I think he's, I think he's run by uh, Putin. Oh, I agree. I agree. I, I agree. And, and I think that in the end, years from now, we're going to find out that this was the greatest psyops, like. Right run thing i mean it's so obvious to me now that that russia's behind this whole yeah. trump thing and 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 really like they got they can they're going to be laughing at us for years for I'm they sure. found out that they found out that manafort was this was just released by the senate intelligence committee republican as uh, and and read, led by a republican mm -hmm. uh found out that manafort um paul manafort a very important man to president trump um is a russian intelligence agent 
Yep. And that the, those Russians that, that he notoriously had in his, in that Trump had in his office, and they had film of him talking to them about how firing Comey and so on, uh, uh, that those guys are specifically not just, you know, diplomats. They are, uh, they are agents. They're intelligence agents. They're operatives. And he, and he was like basically reporting to them. Some people have to stop being naive about it. It's a little troublesome. It's difficult to convince people because you sound like a nut because you sound like, you sound like, the, like uh, McCarthy or something, <clears throat> like it's McCarthyism. But this isn't communist Russia. This is fascist Russia. And basically it's, it is a, uh, a, a fascist bureaucracy developing in Russia that is trying to take us over. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, John, let's wrap things up a little bit here. But I do want to remind people, if they've made it this far, if they want to follow your projects, we have a Facebook group, John Shirley fans. Sean and I try to make sure that everything new, you always uh, let us know. We post things there. So when the, when the record's available and when Stormland's available, we'll make sure people know how to find it and get it. Um, and the record you can get now, but, okay. but the, the CD will be uh, in a few weeks. Yeah, and so and and all that stuff's over at John Shirley fans on Facebook. Um, the uh, and screaminggeezers.com. Screaminggeezers.com. Um, and I just want to remind people, like uh, I look at my John Shirley shelf all the time. It's a prime real estate in my in my library, and what I'm always consistently like, you know, remind myself is when I look at the titles, when I look at demons, the Silicon Embrace, Wet Bones. Uh, everything is broken. I keep reminding myself uh, that the Eclipse Trilogy, all the different various issues that you managed to talk about or work into your career. So I want people to stay, t pay attention, follow uh, this podcast, this blog, because I'm going to have John back. I'm going to get another John Shirley expert, Sean Lawton on, and we're going to go through all that in detail at some point in the next couple months, I'm sure. But I just wanted to get John on here to talk about the new stuff. And it, we did get into a little bit of it, but you know, it's super fun for me to to think about all those things because, and it all started for me when I read the first John Shirley thing that I read was Crawlers, but the second one was Demons, and Demons was the one that hooked me because I was like, this guy is writing a novel about corporations doing sacrifices through giant environmental disasters to raise demons. That's incredible. <laughs> that is amazing. You you hooked me forever with that one, and uh, I just uh, really appreciate it. Um, you're one of the biggest and hugest influences on me. Um, in fact, with my novel Ring of Fire, it was so John Shirley. I told myself in the third act I have to do something that John would never do in the book. So there's a twist in there. People do read Ring of Fire. I challenged myself to do something that I was like. I got to do something John would never do. And you'd have to read the book to find out. But okay, now I'm going to go back to it and I'm going to steal that. I'll just... <laughs> <laughs> well, because I told myself, I was like, there, there, there was a twist in a movie that one, one time you told me you hate it. You hated the twist to this movie. And I told myself, okay, if John hates that, that's something John wouldn't do. <laughs> <laughs> and Reasonable. that's a clue. That's right. a clue. But 
Um, it was so funny to me because just as I was outlining that book, I said to myself, this is the most, because I've, I've always been influenced by your work, but I knew Ring of Fire, which is an environmental sci-fi horror novel. I was like, you know, this, this, this is the like, you know, John Shirley hero worship novel of mine. <laughs> but um, I really appreciate your time, John. Um, you're, you're, you're a total hero to me. And um, I just keep up the great work. I want to hear more Screaming Geezers always. So I'm glad you guys are going to be working together on Zoom, writing new stuff. You can hear two free songs. Um, you can hear two songs just by going to ScreamingGeezers.com. All right. Um, I will include that link in the show notes. And um, people, like, go buy that record. Go to ScreamingGeezers.com. And when Stormland comes out, uh, make sure you get that, but we'll have John back soon. Uh, thank you for joining us today, John.